Well, actually, the truth is, Ananda, for so many years, especially in the very early years when we were really monastic, and there were so many monastics, it was kind of a joke that people could be in the community for quite some time and they wouldn't know who was married to who. Because you didn't see that. People were respectful of the many monastics, so those who weren't monastic didn't demonstrate a lot of physical affection. And then there was another factor which I finally figured out, which was that people were accustomed to seeing that kind of friendship only between husbands and wives. And I don't just mean men and women, but everybody in the community was so closely um, connected in ways that people could feel that it was harder to pick out the couples. Because there was just so much closeness, people who'd been together for so many years as friends. So I think that's spread out because it's just so much more comfortable <laughs> But this is different. This is the setup. If it gets more than three chairs or four chairs wide, then my, the video looks funny. So it just keeps creeping out. Thank you, Nishikama. How generous of you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Saranya. Okay, now we can get down to the business at hand. Okay, let's go, John. Okay, so we are about to begin class number 47. Wow. And we are on number 242 of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And it is very short. Contentment leads to superlative happiness. Don't you love that? There must be words in Sanskrit that mean superlative. (laughs) Okay. And then he says very simply, one cannot attain true happiness by merely hoping for it gloomily. One must decide to be happy if he would go beyond contentment and achieve a state of vital, vibrant happiness. Before I start in on this, I didn't ask if anybody carried in any questions from last week. Or, yes, where is the microphone? And make sure it's on and then leave it on, please. Thank you. It's not actually a question, but I wanted to comment that I was reading, studying autobiography the other day and in the chapter... um, about Babaji, Mm -hmm. very early on, the Master mentions uh, Krishna, Rama, Patanjali, and Buddha as early Early ancient avatars of India. It's true. Yeah, that's why this thing, that's why this thing, excuse me, Patanjali, that's why this book of sutras has endured, is because it's the revelation of a master. And that's why, you know, when I, is it said here? Um, The confluence of three great teachers... Patanjali, Yogananda, and then added with the energy of Kriyananda. Okay. Thank you. All right. Um, So we're talking about happiness. We're talking about finding happiness, which incidentally has been our theme for this year because of the movie. Um, I think that contentment is such an interesting one, and we have talked about it you know, before when we were back, when we were doing it as one of the niyamas, and this is this whole section here as we're revisiting all the yamas and the niyamas. We're into the end of the niyamas here and talking about what, how you can tell that you've done it exactly right. And uh, this uh, link between contentment and happiness is about the difference between living in duality and living in the oneness of your center. Because people have it in their minds that if they become content, then somehow that inherently means that they've settled for something. And that's the phrase that people will say, I've settled for this, 
rather than striving for something more. But that, that's based on the, on the thought that, you know, that the wave has to be moving. And if you're not pushing the wave upward, then you haven't yet reached your peak. But the kind of contentment we're talking about is where you're, you're moving from the origin point of those waves. And that all the energy that is expended, you know, on success and failure and desire and fulfillment or desire and disappointment, youth and age, all of those different things, all of that energy is actually inherent in the center point because that's where it emanates from. So when you're standing in the center point, you have all the energy that could be dissipated in all of these uh, different actions, but it's held still and it doesn't have to go through all those wild gyrations. And so when he, and it's, it's also the, the, the way you want to think about it is, it's the, it's the uh, power, uh, let me just think for a second how to say that. Like what you're looking for, that's what it is. What you're looking for when you're moving on all these waves is you're looking for the point where you can be where you want to be and not have it shift. And, and that's why people are always trying to get something a little higher. They're hoping to get secure enough, have enough money or enough fame or enough talent or whatever it is so that it won't shift, to get away from that sense of insecurity. But the only place to have that actual security is to be in the origin point, not in the waves. And when we're in the origin point, we're standing right where fulfillment originates from. And so it's not like it's less energy, it's all that potential energy is is there, but it's no longer being driven. I've, I've thought about this many times because of my many experiences of being in the company of Swami Kriyananda and this extremely palpable sense of contentment, actually. I mean, and not merely just sort of con- content because um, I liked being there, but there was first in his own aura, but then also somehow that would transfer to you that you were, you were content in yourself. There was simply no place else to be. And it was, it was created first by an external thought, which is if I was in his company or in his presence, there really was no other place that I was going to be. It's just as simple as that. I wasn't going to go anywhere from there. So there was that just, there's no point in thinking about anything else that's happening because I have abandoned all other responsibilities and I am just standing here then in, the, in Swami Kriyananda song, Krishna's Flute. You have called me to the fields, now I have no place to live. I mean, don't leave me here. Krishna has called me away from all my duties. I've heard his flute, I've gone to the fields to be with him, and now I have no other home. I have no other reality anymore. Um, uh, Just this morning, uh, the other day, something happened, and I seized upon it. It was related to Swamiji, and I seized upon it with that kind of crazy dropping of all other realities energy that I remember that I always had when Swami was around. I sort of was running to my room to take care of something. I just shouted to David, you have to call so-and-so and tell them I'm not going to be there even though I said I was. And then I closed the door of my room and that was that. And I said to him later, it was just, 
It had that sense of urgency to me. Nothing else mattered. And what follows after that is a sense of great contentment. Now, this is how the company of a great soul, whether we have that in an embodied form or whether we have that in our meditation or however it comes to us, when it comes to us, we get an understanding of what it means to be exactly where you want to be and have everything else be a lesser duty. And that's the kind of contentment we're talking about. I'm, I am right with God, and therefore there's nothing else that can happen um, that makes any difference at all, because I'm here and I'm right with God. And it's not, we're not content with our circumstances necessarily, because the great saints and sages, those who have a world-changing mission like Master and like Swamiji, are hardly content with circumstances. Swamiji was trying to remold the whole planet continuously. He never stopped trying. And at the end of his life, I remember him saying in such a sort of sweet way, I know that I can't really persuade everyone to follow this path, but I like to think that I can because that motivates me to keep on trying. And he was always trying to find just one more new way of expressing the principles of self-realization so that one more person uh, would, would understand this. And so it wasn't the contentment of inaction. It was the contentment of superlative happiness. That I'm not trying to... I don't need to make anything happen to make me happy. And that's what allows that kind of patient selflessness to just come forth. Tom, would you open one of the side windows? I find it very hot in here. Um, uh, that's, that's what allows you to be patiently helpful. I was talking to someone recently, and you know, we were having a discussion about you know, personnel issues and how, how, how one could approach this or how one could approach that. And I was saying, we were saying to each other, it depends on what our objective is. If our objective is merely to be right and to say it with a lot of force then this would be the best thing to do. If our objective is actually to help people and to to bring about a positive conclusion or a positive result, then perhaps this is what we ought to do. And then I was remembering, I was talking to uh, someone, an old friend today on the phone, and we were talking about uh, how patient Swamiji always was. And it wasn't even patience in the sense of you know, here I am, and you can see how patient I'm being with you. It, 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 didn't, it didn't even register as patience. It was contentment, truly. It was just completely content. And therefore, the, the only thing he had to share was his own happiness. And increasingly, at the end of Swami's life, that's how he, he simplified everything down to share with people your bliss. All I have really to share is bliss. And he stopped teaching in the way he used to teach. He stopped trying to explain things to people with that kind of passionate um, uh, intellectual power and philosophical understanding that, he, that you hear in the first 35 or 40 years you know, of, his, of the life of Ananda. But at the end, he just settled into this superlative happiness and he would just offer it. 
And he would offer it in words, and he would offer it in answering questions. Toward the end, it was almost always he had to have people ask him questions. I think it was just necessary, because I don't think he had anything to say unless you asked him questions. And I began to think, because that's what, almost always what he would do. But if you'd ask him a question, then he would be able to offer an answer. But it would always come out of this completely centered place. And then he, he also, he really talks in here, in this his little tiny commentary, this decision to be happy. And that cannot, it can't be overemphasized enough the degree to which happiness is simply a choice. And the degree to which we um, carry grudges against people, the degree to which we analyze how people are wrong, the degree to which we reiterate our own circumstances. Well, you see, this is the way I was raised and this is what I'm used to. I mean, yes, it's helpful to know why we do what we do. But once we finish the whole story, we're still in exactly the same spot, which is, am I going to be happy or am I going to allow this circumstance to make me unhappy? Um, at the early part of one's spiritual life and also at the beginning of of true self-study, which is coming up in two sutras, one has to pay a lot of attention to one's own temperament. You know, if, if one is not really clear on what motivates you, um, what formed you into who you are, what habitual and subconscious guilts you're carrying, you have to put out enough energy to know that. I... Um, I remember watching this little girl form her prejudice when we were sitting in a hot tub at a health club. And it was strangers in this large hot tub and we started having a conversation and a mother was there with her child. And we were talking about the hot tub because we didn't have anything else in common. And and the mother said in this kind of tone of voice, you know, I really prefer the dry heat of a sauna. She said it just like that. And her daughter sort of looked at her mother and said, I prefer the dry heat of a sauna too. (laughs) And I just projected in that moment, you know, she has an argument with her husband because he wants to put in a jacuzzi and she wants to put in a sauna because she prefers the dry heat of a sauna. You know, she has a divorce because he won't listen to her. You know, it's all formed like that. And so much of us is formed like that. I was watching today just comes, you know, these things come across on the internet. It's actually quite fun what comes across. A 10-minute film of Swami Shivananda look with various uh, well-known but completely unknown to me um, sadhus and saints of India. So the film must have been done in the 40s or the 50s maybe. Um, and in Rishikesh, I mean, it was a, just a quintessential Indian renunciate scene. You know, people have on the least amount of clothes that they can wear, you know, dhotis, bare chests, a cloth thrown around. Everybody's just kind of crowding around. It was all, and it wasn't entirely men, but it was mostly men. And, and the, the buildings, the way everything is moving around, the way the people are relating. There's two things I will say first, though. I didn't know who any of these sadhus were. I'd never seen them before, and the film was a little fuzzy. But every time they'd come in close on the face, you could just feel it. You could just, in one man in particular, he was a Shankaracharya of something, I think. I mean, I actually went, oh, when I saw his face, because it was so beautiful. And when I, I kept looking at it, you know, like, what made it so beautiful? He did have a handsome-looking face, but it wasn't. There was just, 
there was divine consciousness there. It's, it's like you can't fake it. It's just what you are and whatever phys- physiognomy you have, it just shifts over into this radiant. But what I was just thinking is, my gosh, what the British must have thought when they got to India. And with all of their prim and proper and layers and layers of clothes and their Victorian morality and all these different things. And you see all these barefoot sadhus wandering around just in complete indifference, just complete indifference to all of that. Gandhi's famous line when he was going to see the king of England, I suppose, in his dhoti. And they said, you know, don't you think you should wear more than that to go see the king? Oh, he said, I'm sure the king will be wearing quite enough for both of us. (laughs) Exactly true. Because we're Western, we're very outwardly oriented, and it was so obvious, you know, these uh, sadhus and saints and yogis, it was all inside of them. They didn't even... It was just, it it was so unnecessary to create an external reality in that context. Of course, you know, India became poor because British became, Britain became so rich. Britain rises, India falls economically. What a surprise. But, uh, the, but the, it was the power of the inner reality that was so touching to me. But coming back to this point, you know, we can wait until we're more advanced, until we've resolved these issues, until this part of us is settled. You can just make a long line of all the reasons why today is not the day when I'm going to decide to be happy maybe tomorrow or perhaps next week. Um, but it's a, it's a very insidious delusion that, that there is something like later, and that's when I'm going to really get myself organized to be happy. As soon as I work out this relationship, as soon as I don't have to work with this terrible person, as soon as I really get to express what I think, as soon as then. And when I've uh, had to give, uh, been asked to give... Uh, workshops on finding happiness based on our movie and then so on after that. I've always started with the concept of time because the greatest delusion to happiness is that I'm not happy now but I will be then. And then of course when then comes it's now and if you're not used to being happy now then you're actually not happy then either because you're always used to being happy then because you never have that contentment of being at peace with God and therefore restless about nothing. There's a, I was starting to say at the beginning of one's spiritual life, the details of one's karma are very interesting. And I've spent many years being very interested in the details of my karma, who did what to whom and why, and sort of analyzing and thinking it all through. Then at a certain point, karma becomes actually very boring all your own karma and your own specific attitudes about different people and who did what to whom and why and what I can do about it, it, it's all the same. I sort of, you reach the point where all karma is generic, is the way I think about it. It's all generic brand karma being sold at a discount (laughs) because (laughs) it simply is anything that persuades you that now I have a reason not to be happy. And the overcoming of karma, it just doesn't matter what the details are. It really doesn't make any difference what the specific temptation is as long as you resist it. And resist it by saying, why should I allow anything 
to take away my happiness. Because if I'm not happy now, I will never be happy then. And, and it becomes just a practice in itself. You, it's just like wherever you are, you, just, you begin to lose your happiness and you go back and you find it. Swamiji used to put it in this way. He said, you should never allow anything, or Master said it, to get your goat of peace, is how he put it. I can't don't really think of a goat as peaceful, but get your goat is a, an expression meaning that makes you anxious. He said, never. It's just there's nothing that is ever should take away from you your inner contentment of being right with God. And then, of course, what follows from that is you're always right with God if you make yourself right with God. That you failed and made a mess of things is no real big surprise to him. (laughs) But that you allow yourself to be unhappy. Master said, whenever you have a mood, meeting a mood of unhappiness, then Satan has a hold of you. That's how he put it. Any questions or thoughts? Yes, Marilyn? It should always stay on. There's no need to turn it off. And he's controlling it from the back. <clears throat> the other day I was asking myself, why do I turn away from Divine Mother? And I, I was writing out the answer. And in a, what came out was it's the, the glitter of my reactions. I, I'm in, I'm the in, glitter of your reaction, I hear. I'm, I'm in love with, with how I react to everything. Yeah. And, and as soon as I react and I pay attention to it, because it's so fascinating to me, mm-hmm. then I've turned away. That's exactly right. And Swamiji put it once when he was uh, very, very busy and he was driving across the Bay Bridge, I think, and he was in the midst of teaching every night and raising money for Ananda, and he felt a cold come into him. You know, and cold is a living thing. It's a virus or a germ or whatever it is, actually. He felt it come into him. And as soon as it came into him, as he put it, it it demanded that he relate to it. It sort of insinuated him and it made him feel like he had to have a relationship with this. And then he realized that he, he did not have to have a relationship. And in a very loud voice, all alone in his car, he ordered it to get out. And he said, it just did. <laughs> and what, he, what he, he said from that is that part of the way that delusion delusion explains to us is that we have to relate to it. You're having a reaction. You have to think about it. You have to notice it. You have to find it interesting. And then that I, I've shared with you, but it's relevant to this, your question, that I used to dissolve into tears much more often than I have in the last decade or so. And the, one of the close to the last times I plan to have a good cry, it's what women will do, I just was stretched out of my bed getting ready to have a good cry and all of a sudden I lost interest in it. I just, I sort of like, I knew what the whole cycle was going to be. You know, I'd go through this whole upheaving emotional thing and I would be so exhausted and worn out by it and pulled down and it just, and I just, in a moment, I just thought this is really not interesting. It's just not worth it. I can see where this is going and I really don't want to go there. And I just got up and walked away from it. And I, somehow that act of will was like the end, not perhaps the final, final end, end forever, but it was definitely a turning point. This simply doesn't interest me anymore. And that's the same thing. Why am I upset? What did they do to me? You know, how, why does this always happen to me? Why again does this happen to me? It's the same thing that's been happening to me since 
And at a certain point, it's like boring. This is where Master calls the whole cycle of reincarnation the anguishing monotony of it. Now, people imagine when they're, they're used to riding these waves that if you're not riding the waves, you're here. You know, it's like there's no energy. But they don't understand that what happens is all that power comes here and you're here. And everything that is, you're trying to grip here is already held. This is where we started. This is why he calls it vital, vibrant happiness. True happiness, superlative happiness. He's trying to find words to describe, to put it in a different uh, uh, category. But we do enjoy being on the roller coaster, and that's what we have to admit, you know. Just, just realizing that every situation is neutral. I, mm-hmm. You know, it, I mean... It's, whether we experience it as happy or sad depends upon the predisposition of the mind. It's all it is. And that Maria uh, Warner, when she was uh, going into the hospital with what she knew would be the last medical test she would take because she knew she was going to die, and her husband was visibly concerned. And she just looked at him, and, among other things, and said, control the reactive process. Which is, yes, you know, I know that I have terminal cancer now and I'm not going to live much longer, but that we have no choice about. But whether, how and whether you react to that is your, is your decision at this point. Because there was nothing she could do for him because she knew she was going to die, so he, she knew he had to work with this. This is how you have to work with it, dear. You have to control the reactive process. You have to practice the teachings. Exactly. And it's very interesting to watch because the reactive process is uh, quite impressive. And the reactive process often happens before we remember that it shouldn't. And so you find yourself kind of, you know, sliding down the slippery slope. But at whatever point you catch it, that's the point you should stop, no matter what, where. You know, walk out of the room, stop speaking. Just whatever is required, no matter how extreme. And sometimes extreme is very helpful to, to, to do something that makes an impression on your mind, like walking out of the room or dunking your head under cold water or writing out Jai Guru a thousand times on the blackboard, whatever it needs to be, but something that makes an impression on you so that the next time you remember. And, and remind yourself, just say it to yourself, you know, remember the next time this starts, this does not take me where I want to go. My friend, when she was only 10 years old, she didn't know about reincarnation or anything consciously, but obviously she remembered because she's a yogi now. When she was 10, she didn't know who she was talking to or why. She said to herself, being a child is not all that good a deal. Don't forget this. Because <laughs> she could tell it just wasn't really working out the way she'd hoped it would work out. <laughs> okay, anything else? All right. Um, you know, I was just going to say one more thing about the happiness thing. There's a... I think it's a, it's a certain stage of spiritual maturity when that choose happiness just sinks in ever deeper. And, it's a, and here it is, right here in the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. Master says it over and over and over again. And there just comes a time in your spiritual life. See, what happens in spiritual life, this is what Swamiji said once, it was so interesting. He said, because the world is, the universe, creation I mean, is so complicated, 
And I've been, I've been reflecting on the fact that every one of us is unique. And each one of us has such a, a complicated, individualized trajectory of karma. I mean, I'm looking at all of you, and all of you know each other well, and you know, just think of the lives that we've all lived, the places we've been, the adventures we've had, and, and how each one of us is standing in this little circle of vibration, and, and all of us are going to move in a unique way with whatever it is that we're doing. And, I mean, we're a very tiny sampling of the entire creation. That doesn't even take into account the squirrels and the deer and the turkeys. And I just, it, it's absolutely mind-boggling, literally. And it just, it goes on from there. So Swamiji says, because creation is so complicated and we're trying to go to the source of all of creation, there's a natural inclination of the mind to think that the source must also be complicated. And, and there's a, a, a feeling of complicatedness about the spiritual path. I have so much karma to work out, there's just so many issues, so much, some of the phrase, stuff to process. Swami asked me once, because this man kept telling me a lot of stuff to process, and Swami said, what stuff would he be processing? <laughs> it was sort of like, and, and how do you process stuff? <laughs> it was just, he couldn't, he was half joking, but only half. Like, what could he possibly be talking about? Because what happens is, all that complexity is the vibration. It's the own vibration. From the point of stillness, it begins to vibrate. But the closer you come to the source, the less it's vibrating. And when it's vibrating, it has all this appearance of so much reality. But the closer you come to the source, the more singular it becomes. And so the closer, the the deeper we get on the spiritual path, and the more, one of the ways we can tell that we're moving in the right direction, is instead of our minds becoming ever more complicated, they actually become simpler and simpler. And our understanding of solutions, uh, of responses, and one of the primary ones is, why should I allow this to disturb my happiness? Just be happy. We don't have to enter into all the complexity of it. We may have to deal with the complexity. Because if we live in this world, we do. But we don't have to enter into it. We don't have to allow it to invade our reality. That's why so many, they speak of saints, childlike simplicity. They have this childlike simplicity because they're so completely content. Uh, Siddhambar, were you with us in Rishikesh when Swami Kriyananda met Swami Chidananda? No. Well, no. Nishkama was there. Swami Chidananda was the, were you there? The, the very advanced disciple of Swami Shivananda. And, and he was uh, the organizational heir. He took over the Divine Life Society, which was Shivananda's organization. Chidananda stayed in Rishikesh and ran the whole thing that Shivananda had started. Very big position. And Swami Kriyananda, of course, has been the heir to the dynamic expression of Master's work and has created Ananda and all of this. The men were essentially contemporaries. And their positions in regard to their gurus and their gurus' missions were roughly comparable. And it was 1993, is that correct? Five, 1995. We, we took a group of people to India 
Swami was in Rishikesh and we met Swami in Rishikesh and we went over to the Divine Life Society and Swami was going to visit with Swami Chidananda whom he hadn't seen in many years. uh, Chidananda's devotees had it all worked out that it was going to be a private meeting between the two men. But we had it all worked out that there was not a chance. (laughs) So we basically just clung to Swami Kriyananda like glue and when they opened the doors we just all, 30 or so of us, just filed right in and the Swamis really didn't care at all. And the two men just sat down on cushions and we were all crowded in around them like that. There's photographs of the two of them here and there. They're just absolutely beautiful pictures. I don't know where they're stashed, but they're somewhere. Probably David took those pictures, actually. Um, And Swami Chidananda turned to Swami Kriyananda with this sort of impish smile. And he said, And how is... And it was mostly Ananda Village then. Ananda World Brotherhood Village. He said it just sort of just like that. And Swami said, fine. And then he turned to Swami Chidananda. And how is the International Divine Life Society? And Chidananda said, fine. Like that. And then the two men looked at each other and just from deep in their bellies they went, ha 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 ha. And they just laughed like that. And it was like, in the world, they had this huge position. They had, how is your life's work? How is your legacy from your guru? How is your fame and your fortune and all your thousands of people? And the two men just looked at each other and just really began like children just to laugh. It was such a joke. And they were kind of poking each other. You know, how are you? Who are you really? And they looked each other in the eye and they could see. It was so touching. Later, that was how I interpreted it. Later, actually, I spoke to Swamiji. I said, sir, this is what I saw. Oh, yes, he said. That was exactly what was happening. They very rarely, either of them, met a peer. You know, someone who was really their own and that they could exchange like that. And, of course, we didn't quite know. Most people weren't either close enough or just couldn't figure it out enough to know why we were all suddenly feeling so joyful. <laughs> but it was all that complexity... But both men just lived in the calm center and it whirled around them. But it had nothing to do with them. That's why when Swamiji has been asked, you know, what is your greatest accomplishment or anything like that? When he was asked that in an interview, what is your greatest accomplishment? He, he, He said, I'm still here. And he didn't mean that he was still in his body. He meant that I came as a young man to be a disciple and I have never wavered. And then his own words are, you know, when I die, the only thing I want to be remembered for is being a good disciple. That's all that matters. It's very, very simple. And and as soon as we can get it that way, we save ourselves so much energy. Because it's just no necessity to figure this out. All the only necessity is to just rise above it and get back into our center. Now, introspection, self-study sometimes is necessary, but it's not an end in itself. The end point is to get it settled enough so you can turn your back on it and go back to the center. Okay? Now we come to austerity, which actually follows very nicely on the heels of contentment. This is number 243. Austerity cleanses one's consciousness of impurities of both body and senses, resulting in the appearance of special powers, 
So if we practice contentment, we become superlatively happy. If we practice austerity, we develop special powers. So what, you know, earlier when we were studying this as a niyama, um, we, we had a long discussion about austerity. We spent really a long time on it at that point. But what we're really talking about here is the reason that we are not the super beings that we actually are is because the, the bucket is full of holes and all the divine energy that does come into us that we might use um, in ways that would uh, make us remarkable is always being dissipated by all our habitual um, uses of that energy. In the earlier description of austerity, it was described as restraining your energy from going where you would like it to go. It was sort of a funny sentence, and we had lots of discussion when we were doing that class on whatever sutra that was. Let me just see if I can find it here. It was class number 39. Um, It was the sutra 232. But um, if we don't dissipate our energy, we suddenly discover that we have a great deal of energy. And one of the ways that we dissipate our energy is in mental complexity, moods and emotions, and also in just sheer physical indulgences and um, bad habits, just all kinds of ways in which the body just grips us and we're just tossed about. Swami um, talks about here, you know, in our modern times, people submit themselves to an incessant barrage of noise and distractions and all of that takes time and all of that takes energy and when that energy is dissipated in one direction, it's simply not left over. And then when we want to gather our energy in and use it, we just don't have any more. To dissipate our energy equals weakness and to restrain our energy equals power. And what austerity is about and why we can look miraculously powerful is because we've just taken the energy and we've concentrated instead of using it everywhere. And there's no uh, losing it everywhere. There's no uh, substitute for it. It's one of those things that people are always trying to find another way of doing it. Can't I, um, you know, have the benefit without putting in the discipline? And it's just not the way the world is made. And it doesn't mean that we have to discipline ourselves in fanatical, austere ways. It's not the path that we've been given. From time to time in the early years of Ananda, people would go on various jags, barefoot through the winter, you know, not wearing a coat, not combing your hair, um, eating only roots and berries, you know, various things like that. Swamiji never encouraged us in those extreme things, but what we really have to discipline is exactly what we've been talking about before, which is the inclination of the mind and the consciousness to lose its focus. And what is our focus? Our focus is the divine, our focus is service, our focus is patience, our focus is to be giving. This is why earlier on it says seva is one of the best ways, service is one of the best ways to overcome the ego because we're giving, we're giving, we're giving, we're not always thinking about what can I get back, what can I have, what can I do. And if we, if we don't um, concentrate our energy, we simply never get anywhere on the spiritual path. This is where also where energization exercises just have such a, 
a role to play in our spiritual path. I was talking about this in a different program, but um, this, the energization exercises were Master's original contribution to the science of yoga, which is really rather fun. You know, avatars can make things up. They can find new realities for the times. Coming out of Kali Yuga, we're very body-oriented. And so people are used to thinking in terms of their physical bodies. And the energization exercises are that meeting point where willpower, energy, and matter sort of all come together. And it, because it comes together, it's more accessible. We can get at it more easily than if we're just talking about willpower and energy, but there's no connecting link to the body. Almost everybody knows how to breathe and move their arms. But not everyone can sit perfectly still in meditation and hold the spiritual eye here. But that um, doing of the energization exercises on a regular basis, it doesn't feel like austerity in the sense of you think of austerity as lying on a bed of nails or you know, fasting for weeks at a time. But what you're doing is you're choosing how to direct your energy. And that's what that's the true definition of doing austerities. I will choose how I will direct my energy. I will not allow my energy to fall, follow its habitual channels, and I will not allow myself to be distracted when I'm really trying to do. Keeping up a regular sadhana, being sensible in our diet, and attentive to it. Even sometimes austerity is just to be regular. Make sure you're drinking enough water. Be sure you're eating enough nutritious foods to just not allow yourself to get so spaced out in your life that you're not just being steady and calm and sensible in the way that you behave. Um, uh, Swami Kriyananda, early in his spiritual life, started skipping dinner so that he could meditate more in the evening when he was still a monk at Mount Washington. Master told him to eat three times a day. And I mean, we, it said ever, thereafter, Swami always had three meals a day. It didn't, always, it didn't have to be a large meal, but he would always just three times a day. He would very steadily eat. He had so many physical um, difficulties and he kept his body going so long. I mean, in, you know, into whatever, 86. I often thought that Master must have known that if he didn't have at least that much, because he used, Swami used his body um, I used it hard, is the way I would put it. I mean, he, he drove a lot of willpower through it and did not coddle that body. But still, he had those three meals a day on a regular basis. And just to be very calm and focused and very practical about it and not, not get spun out by these things. And this is what gives us sort of steady power. I was thinking about the, the feeling of freedom that people want and... Uh, uh, people sometimes get nervous about, uh, let me think how, how to say this exactly. We, well, freedom is something that we all want to have. And sometimes people imagine that the way you can have freedom is that you don't box yourself in. But actually, the way you can have freedom is if you have magnetism and if you have energy at your command. Because if you have magnetism and energy at your command then you will also not only attract opportunity, but you will attract the inspiration to know what to do with that opportunity. And if you have energy and magnetism, you'll be able to, to move through life as a cause and not just an effect. And the way we get that kind of magnetism is by absolute focus, by commitment, by keeping our word, by 
setting our minds on what we're going to do and doing it, energization exercises by being able to pull the energy in at will. And so all of that discipline and narrowing of our options actually in the end gives us complete freedom because then we can be at command of our consciousness, command of our energy, to the point, Patanjali tells us, where our powers will appear miraculous to others because we can just set our minds to anything because we have trained ourselves by the practice of austerity. And, you know, we practice in small ways. I was, it was, it was a joke, but it wasn't a joke. I went to Costco shopping with someone yesterday, which I don't usually go to Costco, so I'm not familiar with it. And we were in the cheese aisle, which is about 42 degrees, even just standing in the center. It was very, very cold. And I was dressed in very light things. And I was, you know, I was sort of standing there and from both sides, all this cold air. And, you know, I, I complained, it's very cold here. And my friend was very solicitous of my well-being. But as soon as I made that claim, I thought, no, I'm not, I'm not going to stand here and be cold. It's a very tiny thing. But we're so often just, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm uncomfortable, my foot hurts, you know, I don't want to do it. We just hear ourselves all the time saying that. And we have to really listen to ourselves. You know, it may be cold, but I don't have to be cold. Or I may be cold, but I don't have to respond, control the reactive process. It's very, this is what austerity is, to keep the energy from going where it wants to go and choose where where you, you choose to send it. And when we do that continuously, according to Patanjali, and perfectly, where we have the same as choosing happiness, we have trained ourselves to be able to direct our energy only where we choose to direct it. And then we rise up the scale of magnetism so that we can change the material world. That, that was Swami's reality. Swami was always telling us, oh, it's not hard to do things. It's very simple to do it. You just set your attention to the spiritual eye. You ask Master to help and then you just do it. Because he had trained himself time after time after time to control the reactive process and put his energy where he needed it to go. We should just practice all the time. I don't mean we should be unrealistic or too harsh with ourselves, but just practice all the time. I'm standing in Costco, oh, I'm really cold. No, I think I won't be. At least I think I will try not to be, instead of just automatically falling in like that. This makes life so much more interesting than all of a sudden you're just shopping for cheese and it's become a major sadhana. (laughs) But why not? Because those are all the ways the little, the hammer... Put punches holes in the bucket, and the more you can just hold hold that, um, the more you have for what you really want the energy for. Any thoughts or questions before we take a short break? Okay. <clears throat> I, I'm I'm wondering about the controlling of the energy, and I. I you know, it's like sometimes I feel so happy and, and it's just, it's inside of me, but I don't know what to do with it. And I wind up thinking I need to eat something or watch Netflix. And I, but, but if I didn't do those things, I would probably just start jumping up and down. And I'm not quite sure 
you know, what I should do. Actually, I know I, what you're saying. I do understand what you're saying. Yeah. And, and it's just a question of uh, being able to take that into a deeper and deeper state of calmness. And it's just experience. You know, you sometimes, and sometimes you just do feel that, you know, that happy and you have to bop around and do something with it. But it's better to do something that deepens the experience of it rather than dissipating it. Well, and also like, well, I mean, the obvious thing is you meditate or you chant, but if you can't do that, you can go outside for a walk or you, or you just do something that'll take it higher and more inward instead of just losing it outward. And you'll get more used to it. Um, Sai Ganesh has a comment. I can also totally relate to that. And when I'm really happy about something, the first thing I want to do is eat. Uh, I, I really go running. That's what I always do when I'm really so excited that I feel like uh, just eating something. <laughs> uh, just just feeling too excited to hold myself and f- just feel like dissipating it. I just go run. And physical activity always puts you to sleep. If you run five miles, you'll always uh, you sweat it out. And sweat relieves a lot of excitement and just clears and your is, mind. This is the balance point between happiness that turns into excitement or happiness, I was actually responding, well, they're all true. But there's also a kind of almost divine happiness that that is a little too much to handle sometimes too. And that you just are are just fizzing over. Um, And so both things are true. But sometimes there is, there's nothing you can do with it. So you do go out, you take a walk, you take a run, or you chant, or you watch Swami talk to you, or read a book. You know, you get used to all of these things, is basically what happens. All of this is, this is just, this is like, you know, a little child learning to walk. You watch little kids walk. They're so funny when they walk. I was walking, watching this little two-year-old. Like, what makes them move like that? I was actually just trying to analyze it. It's kind of like they lean forward and then their body chases after them or something like that. But as devotees, we sort of begin to, every so often we get into these bubbles of happiness and, and we're just not quite used to them. We're accustomed to the, the moving back and forth energy and we can't quite stay centered in it and we don't really quite know what to do or where to go with it. Um, if you can do something serviceful, if you can do something creative, that's usually the best thing to do or something uh, devotional. Devotional, serviceful or creative. I sometimes cook. You know, it's just a lot of energy and I don't want to become intellectual with it. You can also try doing nothing. And you can also try doing nothing, but the premise of this conversation was that, yes, sadhana is the best thing to do with it. To chant or to meditate is by far and away the best thing to do with it. Or to sit quietly gazing at the sunset. But uh, if you can do that, then we don't have to have this conversation. (laughs) All right. Okay. Let's take a break. Okay, Shudambar? Having a very good time. I was choosing to be conscious, and it was happening regularly. And I was sitting there, and then this weird thought came through, and then I thought, oh, I'm depressed. Uh-huh. And, but I caught it in time, and I thought, it's only a thought. Uh-huh. And so I threw it out very and good. just pitched it out. That's it was gone because 
It wasn't real. No, it was just a thought. You didn't have to relate to it. You know, last, I don't know whether it was last summer, I remember, remember sharing with you all that I felt like my horoscope must be very afflicted. There was a period of time. I sort of said, my moon has gone into Hades. That's how I put it. <laughs> and uh, I, didn't, I don't follow my horoscope, and I didn't even really want to, but I said I could feel like there was this force that was like trying to make me feel nervous and upset all the time. But I, I decided not to participate in it. But it was at the same time I knew it was there. It was a very interesting... Um, the fact that something can be real, but you don't have to relate to it. I never did actually look into it, but it did shift at a certain point. And I, I suspect that's exactly what it was. It was just a difficult astrological cycle, but you could feel that it was, but that didn't mean that you had to dive into it. Master said, you know, he believed, he knew that astrology was true, but he, he didn't want people to be um, uh, subjugated by it. And so he said he would sometimes choose the least auspicious time in order to accomplish things. And it would take more willpower to do it during that time, but he could still do it. That's what I thought of. It took more willpower not to take personally the fact that there was a dissonant energy close to my aura. But I just, it didn't really, it, it could do its thing and I could do mine. That's <laughs> sort of how I felt about it. And that's the, I'm where I'm supposed to be and if this is what I'm going through, that's fine. A great deal of suffering is in our thought about it. And our civilized people suffer more because they're so sensitive about all their little realities all the time. So, some, my friend was talking to me about having been a warrior in many past lives and just not having, just not responding to pain. You know, when, when, when injuries come or something like that, just the habit is very strong to just not, allow that to enter into your consciousness or to be alarmed by it. Just, in fact, my friend, she told me this marvelous story. She was on a high school swim team and uh, she had just joined the swim team but she was a very good swimmer and, and, and like high school girls can be, were really catty. And so one of these girls was sort of trying to be really catty to her about something and my friend said, she just went like that and pushed the woman in the pool and then just walked on. <laughs> and she said she just did it so fast. You don't mess with me. Whack! Like that. And just went on with it. You know, it's like sometimes we can get all engaged in these things and sometimes you just don't. <laughs> I love that story because, you know, having been a high school girl and knowing what that scene is like, just, sorry, boom. She didn't tell me whether the girl was in her swimsuit or her clothes. The picture I like is that she was in her clothes, but I don't actually know that she was. <laughs> I'll have to find out. <laughs> okay, any other questions? Did you have one? Well, when, like yesterday, at the end of the day, we were out at the farm digging the swales and everything, and my brain felt foggy, and it still felt foggy when I woke up this morning, and that that happens to me sometimes when I've been doing a lot, you know. And and I don't know um, what what it's about, or is there any answer? No. It's a very complicated personal question. What are you eating? What are you allergic to? No. What are you breathing? How much water are you drinking? How much sleep are you getting? You know, so there's no simple answer to that. And brain fog is also brain fog is either physiological, dietary lack of hydration or 
or habit, and it could be anyone in all of the above. So you just don't know. You just work with it. That's why I said you have to pay attention to everything and, and not worry about it. Yeah. Energize, breathe, take a cup of good black tea. I'm not above that. <laughs> Any other questions? We've been doing this, uh, you know, this webinar on uh, Monday mornings, Indian time, for India evening. We're doing it at 7 in the morning. And my dear friend Saiganesh told me that um, daylight savings time is going to end. And so we'll now start having to do it at 6 in the morning. And I have discovered the great benefit of Earl Grey tea. (laughs) I find that I interpret the Bhagavad Gita with much more... Accuracy. <laughs> when the Earl is sitting next to me helping me. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else? Swami drank black tea and coffee, but he said it never affected him anyway or not. And I'm sure he's right. But nonetheless, there you have it. I think everybody's, everybody's uh, allowed a few small vices. So... 244, shall we go on? Self-study and introspection aids communion with one's ishta-devata, or chosen form of God. Ishta-devata is a wonderful Sanskrit word. The form of God that you particularly feel close to. The first thing that I uh, thought about, and it's not exactly what Swami's writing here, but it it made me, I, I appreciated it. You know, and you're, you're, the form of God that you feel drawn to, whether it's Divine Mother or the Guru or one of the avatars or whatever it is, uh, or Shiva or Mother Kali. I mean, we're not in that tradition, but that's how it is in the Indian tradition. Your, your family or yourself feels inclined in a certain way. Shivani, as you might well expect, expect has a particular propensity for Shiva. Those who are called Kalidas would be more inclined to think of God as Divine Mother. And uh, some people take the, the Guru himself becomes your, the form of God that you really worship. But the more you understand yourself, I was saying it's more than a preference. It's not like an intellectual idea. It's, it's that which really resonates with your nature. This is again this amazing variety that, that God gives us in this world. Um, when we were in India, when I, when I say we, when I was in India with Shivani um, just about a year ago, right? It was like right now when she and I went to help get uh, Finding Happiness launched and we were in India for the Ganesha festival, whatever that one is called. And we were in Mumbai at a hotel there and Shivani was determined that we were going to find um, a Ganesha celebration somewhere. And... Uh, I don't know why I ever even have an opinion when Shivani is determined because she's very good at this. And so we're just in this hotel and I'm not sure whether she asked any... We must have asked someone. But we just crossed the street and in, in the heart of Mumbai suddenly there's this little kind of almost like an enclave, an area that was very much like our community sort of. Um, not, not beautiful and green like that but just kind of enclosed. Lots of very small little cottages where a lot of people were living and a kind of open courtyard area, and then a little dedicated temple, very quiet, just right in the middle of Mumbai. And we walk in, and there is a Ganesha that was 
like about as big as from the top of the spiritual eye all the way down. I mean, just this huge and very nicely done, but um, very nicely done, but very largely done also. And there's nobody in there. It was early in the evening. I mean, I just looked at Shivani and I thought, your power of manifesting is almost scary, (laughs) you know? And so we're there in relationship to this beautiful, chubby um, elephant god, the uh, remover of obstacles and just all of the things that he stands for. And I I just so enjoyed, again, how all the different ways that the divine personifies itself for us so that whatever it is that um, will take us where we want to go, um, the divine makes a form like that. I was talking to someone not too long ago who grew up with tremendous devotion to Jesus um, as a child and just all through their life and had been confused for some time because Master is the guru, but the heart devotion was really to Jesus. And so I said, well, Jesus can be the form of God that you love. And Master teaches you how to love him. And so we sort of realize the guru teaches us, like the piano teacher teaches you to play Beethoven. Beethoven is what you're playing, but without your teacher you wouldn't know how to play it. So Divine Mother may be who you love, and then Master teaches you how, how to love. And the more deeply we actually come into our true self, and this is where self-study and introspection, but the, the, the more we shed all those layers of other people's ideas and, and actually live spontaneously from the reality of who we really are. Um, we're you know, I've, I've been walking around in these Naya Swami clothes now for quite a long period of time, a number of years now. So, so much so that I, most of the time I don't remember I'm wearing them. Um, and then people will often comment. But it doesn't cross my mind anymore that I have to meet anybody's fashion standards. And I sort of just always say that to myself. I'm an older Naya Swami and I can just do whatever I want. You know, we're going to some fancy occasion, too bad, this is what I wear. You know, I don't have to do that anymore. Now, that seems like a small freedom, and it is a small freedom. But in how many ways do we need constantly just to simply be true to ourselves and to let go of what whoever expects it of us, unless it also comes from our own inner self. And this is the wonderful reality of the spiritual path is that people become very, very authentic to their actual true selves. And the more deeply we can feel who we actually really are, then also we begin to know what aspect of the divine is really going to nurture us. Using Shivani as an example, and of course Swami gave her a hint when he gave her 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 name, but you know, she's a very just a very powerful person and she's very unsentimental. She's very strong, she's very straightforward, she, you know, she knows where she's going and she just wants to go there and she's always been like that. You know, the, the ultimate renunciate and the power of Shiva is just, that's what you would want. Others, what we really re- resonate with is the feminine. 
You just really want the comforter. It's the comforter that you're looking for. And your sense of how to relate to God is always, it's the mother that you're wanting to uh, be with. And others don't find any inspiration in that. And God becomes their boon companion, their friend, like Arjuna and Krishna. And what form of God, whether we then take one of the deities or... um, one of the personifications like the image of Divine Mother or one of the masters. But the more we know ourselves and the more we relax into ourselves, we find out spontaneously how we're, who we are and what we're going to do. Um, Let me just say, what Swami talks about here, self-study and introspection, he defined this earlier. What we're really talking about is awareness. The greater our awareness, and this is why Perfection in this allows us to become aware of, of our unique relationship with God. And we need to just keep um, attentive to that and, and not allow ourselves to be um, confused or distracted away from that reality. Who am I? What really gives me joy? This is where when we all the different chants, all the different songs that we have. It's so enjoyable to me how everybody enjoys something different. You know, we all have our favorite chants, or for a few years you have a favorite chant, or something comes to you, and then you begin to understand. I used to sleep when I had my little trailer. I had my little bed under here, and I had the pictures of the masters above me in the trailer. That wasn't my meditation area, but they were all up at the top. And In the middle of the night, one night, Babaji just, Babaji alone, just fell off, the shelf and landed right on my heart and woke me up just bomb like that and it was, it was so like uh, so delightful you know just in the middle of the night there's a wonderful story it's in my book about Swami of a man who was went to see Swamiji in Los Angeles at the Bodhi Tree many years ago and the Bodhi Tree is a bookstore like ours and it had pictures of saints and gurus all along the walls and this man had been trying to decide whether he should go to India to see Sai Baba or not. He just couldn't make up his mind. And, and Swami's, he's sitting, the room was very full, and he's sitting on the floor against the wall. And Swami actually says, when you're ready, you don't have to go any distance, the guru will come to you. At which point the picture of Sai Baba, he was sitting right under it and didn't know it, came down the wall, flipped over, and landed upright on his lap. Just like, Oh, you know, even the densest brain can sort of get that. <laughs> Presumably afterwards he went to India. But it's really quite remarkable that the more we are honest with ourselves, you know, because sometimes we get, we get false ideas. We want to be the great warrior. We want to be this. And really we don't. We really want to be mother's little child. Or we think we want to be mother's little child. I mean, sometimes a, a female person will think that that's what they really want. But no, you're a Shivite. That's who you really are. You just really want to cut through everything and your gender is not really your reality. You just go step by step, deeper and deeper into this until we're extremely comfortable and our, our, our responses become authentic and not assumed. I was talking to someone who's um, sort of making another circle back into Ananda after absences, you know, as people do. And, you know, you circle back on the spiral stairway. Sometimes your, own, your karma takes you out because you have other lessons to learn. And then when you come back, it all looks different to you. And one of the things that often happens and which causes people to 
leave, leave is because it's too much assumed. It's not really, it doesn't grow from the inside. Uh, in the very early years, you've heard me talk about the woman who was always dressed in white, which was really quite something in our mud-covered community at that time, always carried a small book of master, tended to pose in attitudes like that, and whenever anything got a little too rajasic, just completely blew off the path because there was no roots. It was like, okay, this is who I would like to be. And in fact, actually, this one was particularly odd because I later met someone who'd known that woman in high school. Let's just say she wasn't like that in high school. I won't say anything else. He just, he said, so-and-so? She said, she's in your community? I said, yeah, she's the little, the pious person in white. He just started laughing. He wouldn't stop laughing. But it was just like, you know, this is, let's just pretend that this is who we are. And it just blew off and had to start the whole thing over from where we, where we really are inside. Self-study, introspection. Let's have real awareness of what our real reality is because then the roots are, go all the way down. And, and you make much faster progress even if you look less spiritual because whatever you're building just goes way down into the ground. Swami's question about what's the greatest, what's the best yoga posture standing on your own two feet. It's, I have an interesting experience sometimes when I'm speaking because I'm very animated with my body but I don't want to be, you know, annoying like people can be. So sometimes I'll just, you, you just plant your feet. And even if there's a lot of animation on top of it, you know, the feet are just there. And it's actually interesting because it's a very interesting feeling to just sort of act as though your feet can't move. And I've thought about it actually just spiritually a little bit, like how fun it is to just, and you know, life, lots of things can happen. But if your feet are just, your feet can't move because that's, that's who I am on the spiritual path. Lots can happen on the top. But the more you know yourself, have studied the teachings, are aware of the realities of it, you just plant yourself and stay there. Wind can blow. I am where I need to be in the presence of God. I have directed my energy where I'm going to direct it. I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. When the Hanel Cassidy, in the last, literally, moments of his life. Hanel Cassidy was the man who helped train Ananta and the others in organic gardening. And he died of cancer in his own home. He was the first person at Ananda to die. And he was in his 70s, late 70s. And he was very active until very close to the end. And then he developed cancer. I don't, I don't know if he even went to the doctor. He just lay down on his bed. And he lay on his bed for about six weeks. But prior to that, he was up and about. And then when the end actually came, there was a doctor there and his lungs began to fill up with fluid. I, I don't have this... I read, it, I read this story recently. Anandi was present. Um, in some way, his lungs began to fill up and the doctor turned him so that he, he wouldn't choke on the fluid. And then he turned himself back so that, that it was beginning to cut off his breathing. She turned him 
he turned himself back and then she started to turn him a third time and he said, he hadn't hardly spoken, I know what I'm doing. Just like, I'm done. I know where I'm going. I'm aware of what's happening here and now I'm going to go on to the next step. You can't, you can't fake that. You know, that comes from a lifetime of just always wanting to know where do I stand and what am I doing. And that's what, that's what we're talking about here. And when we have that, we begin to know ourselves very deeply on a spiritual level and communion with that aspect of God, which is exactly right for us, becomes automatic. Isn't that something really worth having? All of these, this Patanjali's promises on the yamas and the niyamas make them extremely attractive, don't they? You know, the process to get there um, takes a lot of commitment. But the, the promise is why we all stick with it. And why at the end of our lives our greatest accomplishment is that we're still here. You know? The wind may have blown in lots of places, but we've planted ourselves and we're not going to move. So, that's it for tonight. God bless you. So we did two sutras. We did... 442, excuse me, 242, 243, and 244. We did three. Okay. And we have one more class before we have uh, about a six-week hiatus or five-week, whatever it is. Jill is going from here. Dunbar is coming from Portland. And Rachel and Brian McSweeney Rachel Ebke and Brian McSweeney are coming from Ananda Village. So, big adventure. We're doing two Kriya initiations now, which represent two Kriyas, Kriya, two initiates. <laughs> but I hope, I hope we'll draw a few more. Yeah, because two people, there's one person in Auckland and one person in North Palmerston who are uninitiated, who are ready for initiation. So we've scheduled two. This is like this is really like the missionaries going out in the field, and the the monks and nuns at home have to pray for us, you know, that we don't get eaten by the savages, and that and that we save many souls. <laughs> you will. I mean, I will. Pardon me. I'm leaving on the 22nd, which is a Monday. The plane leaves at 9:30 at night. It's a 12-hour overnight flight. We just get on it in the evening. We get off in the morning. We've, we've lost a whole day. The 23rd just gets eaten. It disappears. But it's only five hours time difference when we get there. So actually, I, I think it's very going to be a very easy trip. I mean, 12 hours is nothing. Let's see, it's spring then. Spring. But spring, that, looking at the temperatures, spring looks like winter here. I mean, not winter there, but it looks like, spring there looks like winter here. It's, well, in the 60s, you know, it's nice. But I think there are the, as I understand it, the wind blows across the island and the weather is a little, it's island weather. It's a bit unpredictable. About that big. (laughs) I return on uh, November 4th. I believe I leave at the night of November 4th and return in the morning of November 4th. I think that's how it works. Yeah, I I get September 23rd back on November 4th. Uh, um, Brian and uh, Rachel intend to do more of a well they're, they're playing with a, v- a vlog which is a video blog 
We'll see if they actually do, what they've talked about. So we, you all may get much more news than I ever give you. You may get pictures and who knows what. 